You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is James Fields, and I have the great honor and privilege of serving as the lead pastor of the best church in Louisville, Kentucky, Sojourn Church Carlisle. It is indeed a pleasure to be worshiping with you today. Today we're going to embark upon a, a new five-week series going through the book of Titus called This Beautiful Church. This week, we'll explore um, God's beautiful confidence, looking at verses 1 and 4. Next week, we'll explain God's beautiful calling, looking at verses 5 through 16. The third week, we'll look at God's beautiful community, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Um, uh, uh, Week after that, we'll do beautiful commission, verses uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And then lastly, um, we'll look at God's beautiful church chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. If I don't know about you, but guys, I'm excited about this series. This book of Titus is a short book. It's only three chapters. Um, Each chapter has about 15 verses. Um, So it's about 45 verses in all, about a thousand words. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to open up and let you guys know from the very beginning what I want, what I expect from you guys each and every week. I want you to spend time in this book. I want you to Go around with your family, read this book over, um, maybe one chapter a day um, is fine. Um, but I really want you to read through this book and allow us as a church to really um, meditate and to really resonate with what Paul is saying. So will you do that for me? Would you do that as we go through these next five weeks? Would you allow this book to be a part of your normal devotional with your family, personal devotion, family devotional? And allow this work to, this word and God's truth to be spoken over us each and every week. Today, we'll consider three things that provides us our beautiful confidence. Number one, our faithfulness to God. We'll see that in verse one. Number two, we'll see the truth of God's word, verses two and three. And then finally, we'll see godliness and the life of the believer looking at verse four. Will you pray with me? Father, it is uh, almost an oxymoron to talk about a beautiful church when we live in such a broken world. Uh, This world exposes the underpinnings of death, of hatred and sin in all forms. But God, we will be remiss if we did not think about and pause to remind ourselves of even the things that happened this week pertaining to the shooting of Dante Wright, as well as the shootings in Indiana. God, we know that you have used the canvas of sin and brokenness to display the glorious wonder of your gospel. So I pray that as we read the book of Titus, you will help us not to dilute or to shy away from the brokenness and the hardships and the ugliness of this world. And I pray in the same breath that you would not allow us to dilute the power, the beauty, and the majesty of the gospel. May we hold these two seemingly diametrically opposed things, may we hold them close together as we think about 
as we have our minds renewed and reshaped according to the gospel of Christ. Holy Spirit, as always, take my little, make much of it. I don't have much to offer, but what I offer, I pray that you will bless it and you allow our people to, to leave out rejoicing because of it. Be with us in our sorrows. Be within our, with us in our frailties. Be with us, God, in our weakness, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. According to the Oxford Dictionary, confidence can be defined as something um, as being the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something. In other words, it's a firm trust. So what does it mean to have a firm trust in something or confidence in someone? You know, there are three words closely associated with confidence, faithfulness, trust, and godliness that I believe we see in these first four verses in Titus. And what I want to do is I want to be able to look at each one, collect each one individually. So first, let's look at faithfulness. Faithfulness is one of the most misunderstood terms in our society. In Psalm 15, David asks one of the most important questions in all of scriptures when he asks, who may dwell in your sacred tent or who may live on your holy mountain? He provides one of the most poignant answers when he responds by saying, the one who walks, who walks is blameless, who walk is blameless, who does what is right and who speaks the truth from their heart. I don't know about you, but looking at this list, the question remains, well, if, if, if faithfulness is determined by those who walk, walk is blameless and those who does do what is right and those who speak the truth from their heart, the question remains, who can be found faithful? The question remains, what does it mean to be faithful? The question remains, what does faithfulness look like in the life of a Christian? Rich Villadas, the pastor of New Life uh, Fellowship in New York City, he tweeted this out this week, and I found it very interesting. He says these words. He says, at the end of, all, after, at the end of it all, Jesus will not say, well done, good and successful servant, or well done, good and influential servant, or well done, good and high capacity servant, but Jesus will say, well done, good and Faithful servant. You see, faithfulness is an appropriate word to help us define the book of Titus. The Apostle Paul is writing this book as a general epistle. An epistle is a letter, if you will, to his true son that we see in verse four. And he calls Titus to set right what has been left undone and to appoint elders in every city. Have you ever been called to set something in order that's not in order? (laughs) I don't think you have to think too hard. We have a lot of teachers, even in the room right now, who in the school administrators who have to forego everything that you learned in school about classroom management and pedagogy within the classroom to learn and adapt to online management and pedagogy. That is (laughs) having to set something in order that's out of order. Parents. Where are our parents at? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Hey, man, let me give you a a, a clap. You guys have done a great job in this pandemic. But parents, you've endured 18 months of a global pandemic that caused you to homeschool your children with or without your permission. (laughs) 
You became teachers and administrators and gym instructors and counselors and, administra- and, and financial advisors all in the last 18 months. You know, I've been called often to this role to set things in order that's out of order. Actually, it's a constant theme in my life to come into a situation where I was called to, quote unquote, set things into order. And most recently, it happened with my daughter serving as her interim head coach of her basketball team, not having that on my agenda when I started the new year. See, notice Titus was a young man seeking to bring order out of a mess. You see, on the island of Crete, you had widespread disorder, debauchery, and even depravity. New Christians were struggling to understand the life of faith, and false teachers in the church and outside of the church were actively spreading lies and causing unnecessary division. So what's the resort of disorder, debauchery, and, and deprivation? You can only imagine, right? Hard circumstances formed in a hard, a hard culture filled with hard people. That's what you have on the island of Crete. And in the midst of that, Paul calls his disciple, his most trusted and faithful disciple, to go into a hard situation, a difficult context, in an unseemingly circumstance, and calls order and create order out of chaos. And Titus chapter 1 is, helps us to define what faithfulness should entail within a harsh culture and in a stable context. Not only do we have the word of faithfulness, but we also have the word of truth. Truth is another appropriate word to depict this book of Titus. You see, Paul wrote this letter between his first and second imprisonments, somewhere between 80, 60 to 67. And he wrote to God Titus in the establishment of churches on the island of Crete. Crete was an island in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Greece and Asia Minor. I think we have a picture we can show you behind me of what that looked like in Paul's day. Maybe not. That's okay. Paul had visited Crete with Titus and Paul had left him there to establish churches within a very hostile environment. And Crete had a strong pagan influence as it may have been used as a training center for Roman soldiers. Hence, the church in Crete needed Christian leadership that was founded on the truth of God's word and the truth of God's character. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. He he calls God, not just God, but the God who cannot lie. Notice, Titus challenges us to build our confidence on the foundation of a trustworthy God. One who never lies. One who cannot lie. One who cannot be associated with lies. Let me ask you, beloved, this morning, what would it look like? What would it look like for you to build your confidence on the foundation of a trustworthy God? Not a God that, not a God that's two-timey, that sometimes, he sometimes comes through, but sometimes he doesn't. What would it look like 
for you to build your confidence on the foundation of a trustworthy God. God who can be trusted in all aspects and with all circumstances. Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, Paul describes the essence of modeling God's truth within all aspects of our lives, especially the difficult ones. <laughs> the difficult ones that, clog, that cause close relationship and close interactions. Husbands and wives and mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. We'll look at that when we get there eventually. So not only does, not only does uh, faithfulness and uh, truth depict the book of Titus, but this last word is also very important, godliness. Godliness is the last word that best describes the book of Titus. Paul makes his purpose known in verse 1 when he says, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Simply put, Paul calls for church order and right living on an island that's known for laziness, gluttony, lying, and even evil, according to chapter 1, verse 12 of Titus. Notice our knowledge of the truth should lead to our godliness in the truth. Let me say that again. Notice with me that our knowledge of the truth should lead to our godliness in the truth. In Titus chapter 3, Paul provides an outline of what it means to live for Christ in a secular society. So I hear you saying, Pastor James, that's great. Thanks for giving me an overview of the book of Titus, but, but why is this all important? Well, why should I listen to you any longer? Why should I be excited about this series? Well, let me tell you why this is important. It's a good reminder for us of what a beautiful church is. You see, a beautiful church is one that trusts God, knows God, and follows after God. A beautiful church, that's the name of our series that we're going through. As you read through the book of Titus in your personal devotion, as you read through the book of Titus in your family devotions, this is the main thesis of what we need to get out of this book. That a beautiful church trusts God, a beautiful church knows God, and a beautiful church follows after God. Today, we'll start our series by looking at verses 1 through 4, and we'll examine this great pioneer called Paul. We'll look at his profile, we'll look at his purpose, we'll look at his passion, proclamation, and even his praise. Look with me in Titus verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And notice with me as we read through it, notice how many times Paul references the name of God within these, within these four short verses. It reads as follows, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. How many times do you guys see the name of God mentioned here? Yeah, at least four to five, five, right? Five times Paul mentions his name of God. Why does he do that? 
Because you have to remember, a beautiful church, church trusts God, knows God, and follows after God. Let's look at verse 1a to identify Paul's purpose. Notice with me how Paul helps us to see who was writing this letter. He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul quickly lets us know that he is the one who was writing this book. He's writing it to his protege, his disciple, Titus, whom he left on Crete to set things in order. But notice how Paul identifies himself. He identifies himself in two ways. Number one, he says that he is a servant of God. A servant is not just a servant. You can also um, be, this word is equivalent to the word of bond servant. Notice he doesn't just say he's a bond servant or a servant. He also says that he's an apostle. Church, this is a good reminder for us that this is the first and only time Paul refers himself as being a servant of God and not a servant of Jesus. In every other book that Paul writes, he always starts off saying that he is a servant of Jesus. But in this particular book, he starts off and lets us know that he is a servant of God. Notice first, he calls himself a bondservant. That, that is one who is totally committed to obeying God. It is one who is totally committed to following God. And is one who is totally committed to submitting to God. From the very beginning, it seems that Paul clearly knows, sees, and understands his purpose in life. He understands that he is a servant of God. So let me ask you a question. How would you describe your purpose in life? Maybe let me ask it another way. What are, the, what are you most devoted to and why? I like the old saying that says, you know, if you, know, if you want to find out what a man loves or a woman loves, if you want to find out what a person loves, look at their checkbook. <laughs> right? Because the things that we write checks to, the things that we prioritize in what we give money to, these are the things that we find to be the most important things. Better yet, if you're having a hard time asking, answering that question, how could you, how would you describe your purpose in life? How would those closest to you answer this question? Maybe take the time to ask them this week. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your Friend, your roommate, talk to your brother or sister, talk to your children. Ask them, hey, to whom do you, who, to whom do you think I'm most devoted to? What, what do you think is, I'm, I'm, I'm spending my most, most of my time on? <laughs> what, what, what captivates my mind? What captivates my heart? Second, we see that Paul not only calls himself a bond servant, but Paul also identifies himself as an apostle. This word apostle means messenger or missionary. And it's a good reminder for us that although Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles, he was specifically called by God in Acts 9 to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And I love this because Paul could be ashamed of being called an apostle because he says it himself, even in the scriptures, that he was an apostle who was of one of untimely birth meaning that he was not one that was a directly associated with Christ. He didn't see Christ and live with him and see him crucified. He came to faith of Jesus 
on a dusty Damascus road looking to persecute the very Christians that God sends him to save. So let me ask you a question. If God calls people for certain tasks, if God calls people to do certain things, what might God be calling you to do? Is he calling you to trust him with a particular situation? Is he asking you to do something that requires faith and dependence upon him? Is God calling you to repent of your sins and place your faith in his son, Jesus, maybe for the very first time? Is God calling you to follow him into the waters of baptism? Is God calling you to this church to be fully invested in, to grow and to nurture? What is God calling you to do? Why is this important? Why is it important for a church to know its identity and its purpose? Why is it important to know what God might be calling us to do? Because, let me remind us, a beautiful church trusts God, knows God, and follows after God. Second, let's look at verse 1b to identify Paul's purpose. As we look at 1b, we can see why is Paul writing this letter. He makes it very clear. For the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Notice Paul is writing to Christians or God's elected ones. Now, listen, we can do a whole series on election. I'm not here to do that right now, but I promise you we will get to that at some point. It's a very important talk, topic to talk about. But, but to summarize and to give us kind of a, a quick answer about what God's elect means, God's elect refers to God's choice of his people, his church. Another word is calling this, uh, the church is being called the, the ecclesia in the Greek words. It means the called out ones, the ones that God has called out of the world unto himself to be holy and pure before his very presence and through his very power. So why is God, why is Paul writing to God's elect? Why is he called, writing to these called out ones? Notice what he says. They're not for their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Don't let this fly over your head. Listen, if, if, if you are in la-la land, I need you to come back with me. This is a very important point we're about to go through. Paul is writing to God's church. He's writing to them for their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's a good reminder for us that our knowledge of God's word should lead to godliness. A beautiful church doesn't just believe a certain way. They live a certain way. Godliness isn't just about what I do, but also what I stop doing. Godliness isn't just about what I tolerate, but, what also, but also what I forsake. Godliness isn't just about what I embrace, but also what I deny. Godliness isn't just about what I say, it's about how I live. And notice with me, the goal of our knowledge is not winning theological debates on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The goal of our knowledge is not gathering resources, data, and intel to dismantle our enemies. The goal of our knowledge 
is not obtaining Bible, Bible trivial awards in Awana. The goal of our knowledge and the fruit of the gospel is that our lives would be marked by Jesus. Our lives would be marked by godly living. It would be associated with the one whom we say we are associated with. That's where the power of God is seen, experienced, and embraced. Love what A.W. Tozer says. He says that the Holy Spirit, where we're drawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go, still go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. I love that quote. It's a good quote. <laughs> Notice with me, Christianity is only beautiful when it's real. Christianity is only beautiful when it's authentic. Christianity is only beautiful when it's genuine, when, when it's credible. But not only that, Christianity is most beautiful when it shows up in concrete ways. One of the most beautiful things that I've been able to experience in this church is not just someone coming up after me at a service telling me that I preached a great sermon or not someone coming up to me and saying how good of a job I'm doing as a new pastor of a revitalization. I mean, I appreciate that. I need the encouragement. But you know what some of the most impactful moments have been for me? It's when people have sent me emails or came by my house to drop off food when me and my family were having, uh, having uh, dealing with COVID issues in our house. It's, it's people spending time with me, meeting with me on weekly times to meet up and to pray together. It's when people come and, and say, hey, I'm going to the park. And I, I, want, I know that your kids haven't been out. I would love to have them go with me to the park and just spend an hour with me and my kids. That, those, are, those are concrete things, right? Those are just like, hey, I hope you're doing well, pastor. I'll see you next week. Those are things that hit your life personally. And they don't just hit your life personally. They hit your life when actually you need it the most, when you need it the most to happen. I'll never forget one of the members here, when my family, my wife was down sick with pneumonia, um, the husband and wife couple came and brought me some of their favorite meal. <laughs> and, and man, it was a good meal. <laughs> I still think about that meal even while up here. I didn't eat breakfast today, so forgive me. I'm thinking about it right now. But Christianity, beloved, church of God, listen to me. Christianity is most beautiful when it shows up in concrete ways. When the rubber hits the road, when you feel that you, you hear about the love of God and, and the beauty of God, but you actually experience in your everyday life and it gets a little messy and it gets a little traction when you can actually feel and experience that. And we as God's church are called to do just that. We're not called to talk about these high and lofty things about God and just be OK with the status quo of everything that's happening in our world. Neither are we to get so involved with the things of this world that we forget about the high and loftiness of our God. We are here to be the priest of God, to bring heaven and earth together in concrete ways. That the gospel may be seen and experienced through our hands, through our mouths, through our feet, 
We are to be living expressions. If someone is hurting in the church, you call them. If someone is hungry in the church, you visit them. You feed them. If someone needs to be prayed in this church, you lay holy hands on on them and pray for them. If someone's lost a loved one, you, you weep with them. You cry with them. If a shooting happens of another unarmed black person in this country, you email that person. You let them know your thoughts or prayers with them. You ask them, how can I, how can I come into this moment with you and weep with you? What does that look like? It's not up to the pastor to do it. It's up to the church of the living God. Why? Because a beautiful church trusts God. A beautiful church knows God and a beautiful church follows after her God. Look with me in verses two and three to identify Paul's passion. Paul's motivation in writing this letter to Titus is clear. He says, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began in his own time, he has revealed his word. You see, apparently a lying must have been a really big thing in Crete (laughs) because this thing of lying comes up a lot. Lying was commonplace in Crete. Again, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. One of of the own people describes Crete in this way. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What a way to to describe a place. Always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul graciously reminds Titus. Can you imagine Titus looking at Paul like, Paul, really, you want me to go there? (laughs) You want me to go to that neighborhood, Paul? Come on, Paul. East End is so much better. Go out there. Not South Louisville, God. Not where there's meth problems, Lord. Not where there's drug problems. I, I can't go there. Notice how Paul graciously reminds Titus of a simple yet subtle truth. He he says it in verse 2a, God who cannot lie. Let that soak in for a minute. God who cannot lie. So let me ask you a question. (laughs) How would your life be different if you actually believe that God cannot lie? Not your husband's life, not your children's life. How would your life be different? How would it be changed if you actually believe that God cannot lie? Let me go a little further. How would your marriage look different? How would your marriage look different if you actually believed and you actually understood that God cannot lie? How would your parenting be different? How would your relationships grow and develop? How would your fears about the future change if you really understood that God cannot lie? I love this because... Paul invites us to build our confidence upon the trustworthy God who never lies. This idea of not being able to lie is closely associated with another theological term called the the immutability of God, which simply means that God can never change. 
He can never change. I love what Psalm 92 says about God. It says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Listen to the words of Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen to the words of Psalm 10, uh, excuse me, 102, verse 27. It says, but you are the same. Your years will never end. You see, God cannot change. And because God cannot change, God cannot lie. And because God cannot lie, he deserves your trust. He's the only trustworthy person that you can truly depend upon. It's a good reminder for us us as a church that the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our faith is to trust in God's character. And you've heard me say it a hundred times. I'm going to say it a hundred and one times. Don't let your circumstances define God's character. Don't let it. Don't let it. You fight for you fight for the reality of God's character. Don't let your circumstances, don't let you not getting the things that you want or the things that you think you should have, not being where you you think you should be in life. Let not those things determine God's character because God's character is never defined by your circumstances. All circumstances bow the knee and are moldable before God's character. God is good, not because your life is good. God is good because he's good (laughs) and he's righteous and he's faithful. God is not bad because your life is bad. We have seasons of life, y'all. Everybody can't have it perfect and and wonderful all the time. And as as we're learning in the book of James that our sufferings actually have a purpose. They are not just meant to hurt us. They're actually to cause us to endure and to mature. And to learn how to depend more on the God whom we say we love. Listen to me. If you want to grow in God, if you really want to grow in God, trust God through difficulty. Trust God through pain. Trust God through sorrow. Trust God through uncertain times. And I guarantee you will learn that this God is trustworthy. And this God is honest. And this God is good. The problem with us is that we don't want to trust God when we're supposed to trust him. We want to trust things. We want to trust people. We want to trust resources. And what God is saying is that I am greater than anything you could ever imagine. Trust in me. Know me. You don't come here just to get, I I, I hope you feel rejuvenated when you come here. But listen, I'm not trying to give you gas to allow you to go through the week and then come back here empty. Jesus said to that woman at Samaritan in John chapter 4 that, 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 that she, he would put living water within her. He would put water within her that would rise up in her times of weakness, in her times of frailty, in her times of need. I'm not here to sell you some hocus pocus. I'm here to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus every single day of your life. I'm I'm, I'm here to encourage you that everything is going to be all right, not because I say it, because God said it. I'm here to encourage you to know that God has been found to be faithful and true. He's been faithful and true to me. Despite my imperfections, despite my failures, 
Despite my weaknesses, God has been faithful and good to me. And I know he will do the same for you. Amen. Amen. Notice with me in verse four, Paul's praise. He says in verse four, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice Titus is a Greek and Titus was one of Paul's most trusted and dependable co-workers. <laughs> Titus was the one, y'all, that Paul sent to Corinth. If y'all know about the church of Corinth, you know that's a, that's a, a whole lot of mess going on up in there. In 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, he is the one whom he sends there. So Titus is not just um, some, some wannabe that Paul is sending. Paul is sending his best disciple, his, his most trusted disciple to be in the hardest situation imaginable. See, Titus had a, a Greek background, but Paul refused to have him circumcised when they went to Jerusalem together, according to Galatians 2, uh, 1 and 3. So when Paul refers to Titus as his true son, underline that. That's very important. Paul, when he says that Titus is his true son, he's not just trying to give um, Titus some type of affirmation. What he's doing is he's validating his identity. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying that Titus, I know that you have not been circumcised. I know that you are from a Gentile people. I know that people don't think you should be the pastor at Crete. But listen, you are a legitimate Christian, even though you're not circumcised. I love this about Paul because it reminds us of another common theme that we talk about often in our church, that identity precedes function. That Paul reminds Titus of his identity. He says, Titus, you are a true son. You're a true son, Titus, in our common faith. I know that you have not been circumcised. I know that you have been taught up in the ways that I have with Judaism. But, but Titus, you're a true, you're a true son. <laughs> you're a true son in the faith. And as a true son, Paul encourages Titus to remember his identity and his purpose, as well as the identity and purpose of the local church. Because remember, church, remember, beloved, that a beautiful church trusts God, a beautiful church knows God, and a beautiful church follows after God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you for the grace it is to know you, and to be known by you. We thank you, God, that you've called us to be your beautiful church. Help us to trust you, God. First of all, even before I ask that prayer, help us to be reminded that you are trustworthy. Pray even now, as we pray right now, that you will remind your people of how you've been found faithful time and time again in their life. I ask God, not only that you would help us to trust you, but help us to know you. God, we don't want to just know about you. We don't want to just be associated with you. We want to know you intimately. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow and give confidence even under the, for those under the sound of my voice even now. I pray that you would give them confidence to know you as the God who you revealed yourself in the scriptures. And finally, God, help us to follow after you. May our lives be marked with lives of godliness. May we be men and women who are marked by the purity and the beauty of what it means to be associated with Jesus, which is godliness. Grow us in this way. 
These five weeks are short, God, but these five weeks can be so oh so impactful in the life of our community. May it be so for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I invite you to look in front of you to the pews. We're going to take communion together. Communion um, speaks to the reality of Jesus being our perfect and all-sufficient king, our perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. It speaks to his life, his burial, his death, his sufferings, and even his glorious resurrection on the third day. Our partaking of this meal proclaims more than taking bread and wine. It proclaims Christ's death until he returns. So if you have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, do not take this meal. This meal is not for you. This meal is for those who are following after Jesus, who have looked to the cross and seen their sins forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took eat. Uh, bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat all of you. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat and drink. So let's eat together. Excuse me. In the name of the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, he took a cup and after blessing it and giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it. All of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink this cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I tell you, I'm going to eat, drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.